Good evening. Good evening. I always, uh, we are always reminded of what Paul would tell Timothy in those epistles to be ready in season and out of season. Yes, I mean. As you all know, we have been traveling through the book of Galatians for months at this point. We're almost finished. We're almost finished. But just today, I felt like the Lord had uh, began impressing on my heart another thing to preach about. Um, and at first, I had assumed that this message uh, in particular was for the future, something that the Lord would want me to minister on in the future. So I came here... Uh, a few hours before service started to start uh, preparing this message. Um, I don't really have any notes with me tonight. Some of y'all think, oh, thank goodness he doesn't have notes. But you need to understand, I'm not like my mother. I, you know, notes are my map. Notes are my guide map. I cannot find X, which marks the spot without my notes. But... As the Spirit has led us, uh, people like me and even Sister Jen, I'm taking advantage of that, amen, sister, so that I'm not alone in this. We've had to minister a few times, at least I'm sure we have, without notes, because the Lord would give us a different subject to talk about. Amen. And by His grace, that's what we're going to be doing tonight. Yes, All right, so go ahead and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Job. Thank you, Job chapter 42. That's the last chapter in the book just before you reach the Psalms. Job chapter 42. I'm going to begin at the first verse. Job chapter 42, beginning at verse 1. If you're there, say amen. Amen. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from you. Who is he that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. Y'all might be seated. The book of Job, like every other book in the Bible, is at a perfect spot in the Bible. The layout of this whole part of the Old Testament is a total picture of that famous verse that weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Yes, hallelujah. The book of Psalms, the largest book in the Bible, is a book of a book of songs. The Psalm book is a book of songs. It's a book of praise. It's a book of worship. It's a book of, at times, brutally honest prayers to God. And the 44th Psalm, the Israelites, at least this is how most interpret it, was written during a time when the Assyrians had exiled the Israelites from their land. And whoever wrote that Psalm, reflecting on that situation, was just absolutely curious why God was allowing such a dark season to uh, descend down on the Israelites. And yet before this entire book of praise, you have to read through, if you're reading from Genesis to the end, before that great book of praise and prayer and worship, you read through a book of suffering. The book of Job is a very unique book. Nobody really knows who the author of this book is. Many people have said that it's very possible that the book of Job was the first book in the entire Bible that was actually written. It doesn't make it the first book where this stuff happened before anything else. It just, many have believed, I'm assuming because writings of Job date back farther than any other writing that can be found, that it's possible that of all the books in the Old Testament, the book of Job 
could have been the very first one that was actually written down. Uh, for that reason, many have speculated that Moses could have been the author of the book of Job. And I think that that's likely, again, we don't know who the author is because the author is never mentioned, but I think it's likely that Moses could have very well been the author of this book for a few reasons. The book of Job ministers to the Christian that is suffering. Moses, as you all know, was raised in Egyptian royalty, kills an Egyptian one day out of uh, sympathy for a Hebrew slave, and then he leaves Egypt out of fear for his life. He then goes to the land of Midian, and in these ancient times, the land of Uz, where Job is from, was very close by to the land of Midian. And it's very possible that Moses could have heard Job's story, and Job's story could have very well uh, been used of the Lord to minister to a man like Moses in his runaway situation, because people in Moses's condition, running away from the biggest empire in the known world of your time, many people would ask the sound question in a time like that, where is God in the suffering? Where is God? I'm here, and even a few friends I know are here, but I have to ask, where is God in all of this? It's very possible that God used Job's story to minister to Moses it could have helped Moses a lot adjusting to the fact that he was talking to this same sovereign God whose wisdom is infinite whenever he spoke to God in the burning bush. Uh, it's possible that Job's story could have given Moses further motivation uh, to follow the command of the Lord and go back to Egypt for God to use him as a tool to free the Hebrews out of bondage. All of this is just possible. Regardless of however you want to look at it, the book of Job answers a glaring question that a lot of Christians ask, often in situations where the said question is prompted, and that question is also the title of this message tonight, Where is God in the suffering? As I said, I am here, my friends are here, perhaps even my family is right here with me, and yet in spite of all of the conditions I have to ask, a question, where is God in the suffering? And there's an answer to that question. Will you all pray with me, please, before we go any further tonight? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity that you've given us, Lord, this wonderful opportunity uh, to learn from your word, to minister from your word, to receive from your word. God, I ask that you anoint my lips as I minister this message that I believe you've laid on my heart for this body tonight. I ask that you minister to each of us through your word, God, for we trust that you cannot separate the Holy Spirit from the word of God, seeing how there is not a clearer way that you are communicating with us today than through your word. And we trust in this solid foundation that you've given us, Lord, and we give you all the praise and glory and honor for who you are and for what you've done for us, God. For this great testimony that you've given us in Christ Jesus, we thank you for it all and we say it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The book of Job, you know, the one big misconception that I believe that people have, and I, I kind of, I've alluded to it myself here tonight, is that the book of Job is a book of suffering, which is true, but the book of Job is not a book where suffering is happening all throughout. Everything that people talk about when it comes to the book of Job really happens in the first two chapters. In chapter 1, God allows Job's suffering. In chapter 2, Job suffers. And those are just the first two chapters of this 42-chapter long book. The book of Job is very unique. If y'all know me, you know that I used to love to study film. I used to like uh, watching videos on YouTube about movies and stuff like that. And one thing that I've always found interesting about the book of Job is that this book is so dialogue heavy, it's really the closest thing to um, a script that you have in the Bible. When if you're learning something about God, about Job, chances are you're learning it from somebody's mouth as they speak in this book. This whole book just consists of talking and then talking and then some more talking 
In the first chapter of this book, Satan approaches God in God's throne room. How that happens, I have not a clue, but Satan does that. Satan says to the Lord, and I'm skimming through this, basically that God has to buy worshipers. Satan has the nerve to challenge God. He says to the Lord that Satan has gone everywhere across the earth. Uh, Peter would say that the devil roars like a lion uh, uh, seeking whoever he may devour. That is Satan's constant mission on this world, and that's what Satan has been up to, as he always has been. But Satan has his eyes strictly on Job. Satan is challenging God in this first chapter over Job specifically. Actually, I take that back. That's not really what happens. What happens is that God personally recommends Job. God calls Job out in the presence of the devil. We love to think that it's always the other way around, but in the book of Job, God recommends Job for Satan to target. Satan says, I cannot attack Job because there's a hedge of protection that you've placed around him, and we love those hedges of protection. Unfortunately, Job presents us with the truth that these hedges can be lifted from time to time. The hedge of protection can withstand the forces of the devil, and you and I, our biggest hedge is the cross of Calvary. And if God lifts a hedge of protection, that doesn't mean that we lose our salvation, but this, this dialogue here in the book of Job simply speaks of God being willing. It doesn't speak of Satan tearing through the hedge. It speaks of God lifting the hedge off of his own child, so that Satan could torture this man's life. And don't act like that's not what the devil does to Job. His family, his business, his cattle, his children die very, 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 very quickly. What happens is God gives Satan authority over the weather. God gives Satan authority to influence raiders. I believe it would have been the Chaldeans, to be honest, who would eventually become the Babylonian Empire to come through and kill Job's sons, his children. A lightning bolt from the sky. The Bible says that fire would rain from the sky um, to destroy Job's businesses. And Job, here's a man who is very privileged. By the standards of his time, Job could have been, at least the way we understand it, one of the wealthiest, most privileged men in the world, loses it all in the blink of an eye. And why does he lose it? Does he lose it just so God could win some glorified shooting match with the devil? Because if you just read those first two chapters, that is really what it looks like. And to a lot of people, when they go through a season of suffering, it might just look like that. A lot of people, even non-believers, strange enough, will ask these two questions during an intense time of suffering. Why God? Not just why not why Buddha or why Allah, but why God? Because deep down, just about everybody, I say just about, knows that God is in control. So why in the world is God allowing a season of suffering, if not ordaining it to happen himself? It's very interesting. One thing that I was thinking about is that you and I cannot prepare for a season of suffering. Job was unprepared. We love to think about when all of these doomsday prophets are rolling around 100% of the time of which are wrong in their little prophecies, talking about the end of the world being tomorrow or yesterday or whatever. I remember that uh, scene off of Cloudy with the Cloudy with a chance of meatballs with two homeless people. One of them is holding a sign saying the end of the world is today. The other is pointing a sign next to him saying the end of the world is tomorrow. And the guy, get, one of the, the guy holding the sign with the end of the world is tomorrow gets hit with a big meatball. And the other homeless guy says, see, I was right. I always thought that was hilarious. But with all of these doomsday predictions, you see, what, a lot of people stashing up food, guns, this, that, clothes, things like that, underground bunkers. People have built entire bunkers to hide 
underground when the end of the world comes. Let me just say this. When the actual end of the world does come, the Bible says that you won't be able to hide in a cave from God. No bunker can save you from God's providence. That's just not the way these things work. Nobody can prepare for a season of suffering. But with the knowledge that we have, the knowledge that even Old Testament saints would have had at, by the time that the kings of Israel were around at least, people know and have always known that God is sovereign in his authority. God is sovereign, and that's a doctrine that I feel like much of the church has grown to become afraid of because of some of the things that implies we don't teach the sovereignty of God the way that our Calvinist brothers and sisters do in saying that God has pre-elected who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. But at the same time, we can't use that as an opportunity to stray from the fact that God is sovereign. I once heard a theologian, a Calvinist theologian, but it was true nevertheless what he said. If God is not sovereign, God is not God. Because if he's not sovereign, he's not in charge. God tells the planet's what motion to spin on, where and when to revolve around the sun. Yes, he commands he the sea. Um, he commands how bright the yes, sun can shine. God you. is sovereign. We yes. don't have to believe, we don't have to reject free will to believe in the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. This means that everything in some way, shape, or form is under his dominion. Free will in and of itself was created by God given to man to exercise freely his or her own decisions. God, in some way, shape, or form, is in charge of everything. Amen. And that means that he has authority over the devil. Martin Luther, the great reformer, tomorrow is Reformation Day. It's like 505 years since the Reformation first took place in Europe all those years ago when the church had a big revival being brought back to the truth that the just shall live by faith. Uh, Martin Luther, who the Lord used to spark that revival, once said something very wise. He said, the devil is God's devil. The devil is not under his own authority. He's under God's authority. And as powerful and encouraging as that might seem in some times, whenever you get a flat tire and you think it's the devil, well, devil, you're God's devil, so take that. It also tells me that every time the devil attacks, it's because God was not blindsided to that and intentionally, consciously allowed the devil to do what he did. The book of Job is a deeply personal book of a man who gets very personal about some beliefs. In the beginning of this book, God tells the devil that this is a man without sin. And I read that and I ask myself what most of y'all do. What in the world does that mean without sin? Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So what does it mean if somebody's without sin? Maybe Job was actually without sin before this time in his life. But by the end of this book, Job is repenting of something. So whether or not Job was truly sinless before these events, by the end of this book, Job is brought to a deep place of humility. Nevertheless, this is an upright man who apparently, even in God's own eyes, does not deserve the, devil, the, the devil's torment over his life. And the devil basically says to God, well, Job, I mean, look at all that he has. Look at his business. Look at his family. I'm paraphrasing, but the challenge that Satan dares give to God is that, God, you have to buy worshipers. Look at all you've given, Job. How in the world could he not praise you? How could he not follow you? And God gives Satan permission. God lifts the hedge. And Job is thrown into a season where it seems like God is not there where Satan is only there. Job has a good excuse in this time of his life when he loses absolutely everything to actually say something that many Christians try to say today, but more often than not, at least I believe, isn't the actual case, and that's the fact that the devil did it. Y'all have heard that one. Any little inconvenience happens in somebody's life, the devil did it. The devil broke my glasses that I just dropped myself. He had to have done that. The devil made me say that word that I said when I stubbed my toe on the bed. 
This is, but Job, Job is different because this is the work of the devil. This isn't God's judgment on his life. And here comes Job's friends from other countries. Job, a man of his, uh, let's see, how would you put it? A man of his uh, popularity as rich and as uh, big of a business owner as he was, he had to have had some friends who were also probably elite, regardless of whoever they were. Here comes Job's friends, and they are just some of the worst friends you could ask for in a situation like this. Instead of comforting Job, they begin to challenge Job's sanctification, his consecration to the Lord. The best thing that Job's friends ever did was actually come to sit down with him. And I believe the Bible says for a whole week, they just sat down with Job in silence, just being company. And Job also has his wife who has been spared in all of this, and she's telling Job to just curse God and die. You see, it's weird what Satan is accusing Job of in a way you see in Job's wife. The accusation is that, God, you have to bless all of your people for them to worship you. Here it is, this major unbelievable inconvenience on their life and Job's wife is at that place that Satan probably thought that Job would be at. Job just cursed God and died. Job looks at his wife and he says something that not every man could get away with today and he says, woman, you speak like a foolish child because God has never been anything but good to me. Why would I stop praising him now? And yet in all of this, through that great exhortation, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Throughout this entire book, it's basically just one big conversation between Job and his friends. Job's friends are saying, Job, let's figure out if you've sinned against God. They're literally walking into this man's situation where he's just suffering with this logic that's not even entirely biblical that says all suffering is a consequence of sin. Well, Job is suffering, therefore Job must have sinned. That's not really biblical. Jesus, I'm reminded of the situation that the Gospels record where he heals a blind man and a group of people, I believe. It was the Pharisees who asked him, uh, who has sinned for this man to be blind? Was it him? Was it his parents? And Jesus says, nobody has sinned. This is for the glory of God. Not everything is God's judgment on your life, and I dare say not, not everything is Satan's attack against your life. Some things just happened. You can't stop every one of your loved ones from dying. This church knows that we have prayed with such faith for some people to be healed who went on to be with the Lord anyways. There are some things that naturally you just can't stop. But what we can do, regardless of the reason for our infirmities, whether you have a physical problem, a mental problem, or a family problem, give it to the Lord and he'll take yes. care of it. Hallelujah. Job's situation, though, is different. I say it's different. Uh, he ends up giving uh, his situation to the Lord. But through this shooting match between Job and his great friends, it all ends on what at first glance is such an odd note. Finally, God appears to them. But God appears to them in the form of a great big whirlwind. And whenever I read about that, one of two things are coming to mind. Either God has settled on them in the form of a whirlwind that's just strong but just weak enough to not suck them up into the air. Or out there in the distance, in the middle of all of this barren land, as Job is scraping the boils off of his skin, you just see this big F5 tornado slowly drift to the ground, and then God starts to speak out of that. That's terrifying. And you read about the prophet Elijah running away from uh, Jezebel, how the Lord comforted him. You read about the Lord Jesus Christ, how he would sit down and personally explain things to his disciples that they could not understand. Here's Job talking to a twister. It's just the weirdest ending that's at first glance to a book that's already just bitterly confusing. At first glance, all that's happened so far <coughs> is Satan approaches God says that God has to buy worshipers. God allows the devil to torment Job's life. That includes taking away his family and his crops and all of that. At the end of it, God comes down 
in the form of a whirlwind and begins to rebuke Job, the suffering man. He begins to rebuke Job. God comes down, says to Job, where were you whenever I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you whenever I put all of that together? Job, who are you exactly? God straight up roasts one of Job's friends, the friend who is trying to be so wise. God comes down and says, who is this? Basically, there's no greater insult than not even acknowledging really who the person is. In the book of that, and then of course Job's faithfulness is rewarded at the end of it. And at such a surface view of things, that is the book of Job. And you read that and you just think to yourself, what in the world did I just read? I mean, is this really what it's like? Well, there's a lot more to it than that. See, Job, whenever God says he's a man without sin, present tense, we know that Job just might have been truly, literally without sin in his life at that point. But God, as he told the prophet Samuel, judges the heart. And apparently, by the end of this book, there is a thing in Job's life that maybe God needs to work on. See, Job repents in chapter 42. What does he say? I know that you can do everything and that no thought can be withholden from you. Who is he that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me which I knew not. Job's repentance is basically, God, I don't understand, and I'm sorry for not understanding. Job kind of doesn't know what exactly he, has, he is guilty of, and yet whatever he's guilty of, he repents anyways. And you look at that at first, and it's just bitter. It's just absolutely bitter. But what did Job say to some of his friends before this? If you go a few chapters earlier, Job begins to challenge his friends by saying, What wrong have I done to deserve this? And as unbelievable as his circumstances might be, even if it's just a little bit at the same time, there is a pride issue right there. As much as we try to ignore it, Job is countering his friend's defenses with this idea that I have done nothing wrong. And that is a faulty understanding of what humanity is. That's a faulty understanding of who we are and of ourselves. The book of Job presents such an unbelievable, unheard of, message for the believer today. It's incredible how the Holy Spirit can teach you so much about God with such simple information. We see that God's wisdom is divine and that we don't always understand that wisdom. There's a major study in the body of Christ today, and I do think that this study has its place in the body of Christ. The you might have heard of the study of apologetics. How many of us have heard of that before? Apologetics? Well, the idea behind apologetics is this idea of studying. Uh, a lot of it has to do with defending the faith, seeing how Christianity holds up historically, scientifically, things like that. And the end goal is to defend Christianity to the secular world. I think there is a place for that study but what I have seen sometimes are people who pursue this study of great knowledge for the sake of defending Christianity against the world. And what they've done is they have become consumed with the pride of all of the knowledge that that uh, comes with. And this leads them to a place to where God just is in a way obligated to prove himself to me. And if he can't prove himself to me, then he must not be real. And in a sad way, in this great quest for knowledge, they don't, in this great quest for knowledge for the sake of strengthening their faith, they don't gain faith or greater knowledge, but they become lost in the foolishness of the logic of this world and believing that God should have proven himself to me. And the book of Job says God doesn't have to prove himself to a single one of you. Whenever we say that we are in the covenant of grace, Sister Jen did a teaching on grace just this morning, undeserved. 
undeserved. The grace of God is undeserved to those who receive it. So undeserved that the only way to receive it is by faith. Without that, it is literally impossible to please God. There is no great business empire that you could build. There is no great impressive family that you could have that could make your way into heaven for you. Your walk with God is a very personal one. And that's not always going to consist of things, situations, dilemmas, sufferings that you understand. And in these seasons of suffering, you, friend, are going to be presented with a dilemma. And that's acknowledging God for exactly who He is. And that just might want to fight against what your flesh wants God to be. Because the secular doctrine of who God is supposed to be is that He's some big glorified teddy bear. He's my charity maker. He's just my big, He is a protector. But there is no other purpose to God being in my life than literally everything that I want Him for. God, I want you to keep this business that I've put here. God, I want you to cater to all of my needs. We'll talk about how I'll serve you tomorrow. But God, I want you to just, and it's just this constant display of God, I'll do it tomorrow. You just do what I tell you to do right now. And the thing about it is, bless you, we don't even know if that's in the what in the world Job is doing. I can't tell you that Job did that because we don't really know. We can infer that Job's biggest issue was the pride of being uh, as sinless as he was according to how God describes him in the first chapter. But what we know is that God's ways were not totally understood by Job by the end of this book. And that, oh man, that challenges the Christian today. Because you and I have the complete Old and New Testaments today. Job did not have any of that. If the book of Job really did happen before the time of Moses, that means that Job would not have even known about the Old Covenant, the law of God. People like Job just walk by faith, believing that God will take care of them, believing that God will do things for them, just walk with God. Wherever the Lord leads me, I will follow. He didn't have a Bible. He didn't have the Ten Commandments, if what, if what the people say about this book is true. He just had Abraham-like faith in God, because that's all you could have had in the Lord. And when the Lord begins to reveal himself to you, you're not always going to understand that. You and I have a lot more knowledge about God and who he is and how he works today than Job did in his time. And even still, we sing that song, even when I don't feel it, you're working, even when I don't see it, you're working. We sing songs, and that's not the only one. We sing songs about even in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our tribulations, you're still God, I'll still praise you, I'll still worship you, even if I don't know what in the world is going on, you're still my God. Do you know what you're singing when you sing stuff like that? You're not prophesying over yourself. I mean, I think that we spiritualize some things too much. But what you're saying is very, very easy to not live out, especially in this day and age. What we see in the book of Job is a man who actually doesn't have a clue what is going on by the end of all of this suffering. And yet he still repents. He still has faith in the Lord anyways. After everything that his friends have been telling him about God and sin and suffering, Job, I don't know what in the world you did, but you deserve this. Whatever you did, you did it, and you deserve this judgment from God over your life. At least half of the people hear that, and it's not a good exhortation, but at least half of the people today hear a little exhortation like that, and they leave the faith. Job is surrounded by attacks from Satan, Bad, bad, bad encouragement from his supposed friends. And yet, in the midst of all of that, on top of the fact that Job just does not know what in the world is going on, what he's done, if he's done anything to deserve this, he still walks by faith. He still believes in God. The book of Job doesn't have a happy ending in the sense that Job knows what in the world was going on through this season of his life. We know that God would reward Job's faith, that God would double everything that he had beforehand as a great blessing to Job, that Job would die a very old man with many 
life that he would die a godly man and no doubt about it one of the first people you want to talk to when you get to heaven is Job because how you could get through something like that without the law without the new testament only faith that's a story that you want to hear from the men who lived through that and yet here we have Job in the moment repenting he has not a clue by the end of this book God comes down in the form of a whirlwind. And he says, he doesn't explain himself to Job. What he does is he says to Job, Job, I'm sovereign. You're not. And that's God's statement to Job. Whenever Moses would find the burning bush, what did God say to him? When he told him to go back into Egypt. Again I paraphrase. But God didn't say to Moses. Moses you, you don't. You don't go to Egypt saying. I've come with this staff. Say the God of Abraham. Isaac and Jacob has sent me. Yes hallelujah. Because God is the powerful one. Not you Moses. Not you Job. We're not the powerful one. God is. Well, what about, you know, we're New Testament believers. We're new. There's a whole movement in the church today that has a very misplaced view of faith. And this idea is that if you want something, you, by faith, of course, by faith, can just confess it into existence. You want a husband? Just confess him into existence. I've heard people say that. Uh, Lord, help us. But if you just want something, you, we have that same confessing power that God has. And by faith, if you just confess it into, do it, confess it. Friend, only God has that power to actually confess something into existence. Only God has that power. And if we don't walk in this constant humility at the first glance of not getting our way or not knowing what in the world is going on, believing that we didn't deserve whatever's happening to us in our lives, be careful. It's for reasons like this why we're told to walk by faith, not by sight. It's not an excuse for willful ignorance. It's not just telling you to ignore however many books you can, don't study anything. It's telling you that you just might not be as smart or wise, that John Washington just might not be prepared as prepared for this world as he thinks he is. And there just might come a season, whether it's something God allows or whether it's something he ordains to happen himself, that John Washington will have absolutely nothing going for him except for his faith, his trust, his dependence on Jesus Christ. Because just maybe your knowledge, your understanding, your wisdom is not always going to come to your rescue. But God's wisdom, even though you might not understand it in the moment, definitely can keep you where God needs you to be, even in the midst of the suffering. God did not take away the furnace for the three Hebrew boys. God did not even diminish the flames. But God intentionally, intentionally, consciously allowed Nebuchadnezzar II to light those flames on fire, to burn those three boys alive, to even light the furnace seven times what it would have originally been lit up to. Amen. And sure enough, in a situation like that, those boys would have died. But you know what these boys said even before Nebuchadnezzar had thrown them in there during the Babylonian captivity? They said to Nebuchadnezzar, our Lord will save us, but even if he doesn't, yes, but even if he doesn't, hallelujah. even if God does not save our lives, Christ. we will serve him anyways. Yes, hallelujah. Yeah. Hallelujah. And you know what's interesting about that story? Glory that to great you fourth name. man Glory in the fire yes. experience. Thank you, There's no mention of the Hebrew boys noticing that fourth man. You know, we hear a lot of talk today in this day and age about a great move of God that's coming. I'm waiting for that great move of God. Aren't you waiting for that great? God is always on the move. God is always on the move. He never stops working, okay? okay? He did not start being God just because you told him to be. He was already God before you knew him. He's always on the move. And the fact is, the church today, and it's good to ask for miracles. It's a good thing to ask for signs, but... The fact is, God is already with us working so many things on our behalf. Isn't it possible 
that the issue with the church today and the miracle problem isn't that we're not experiencing miracles, but could it be that we experience miracles and have become so used to miracles that we just don't even acknowledge God's presence in them anymore? We've become a little too used to walking with God that maybe a few things have become a little too normal for us. Opening a door that no man can shut. Just this summer, the Lord had miraculously given me a job, and it was a door that no man could open, and praise God, it was a door that no man or devil could shut either. Yes, I Is it possible that we become a little too used to these things? Mm -hmm. Here they are in that fire, those three Hebrew boys, and they don't notice that fourth man. At least it's not mentioned that they did, but who did notice that fourth man? Yes, that's right. Nebuchadnezzar did. The mightiest man in the world of his time looks into this fire and he says, this figure is like a son of God, yes, which is so right. interesting because a lot of people get mad at that. And apparently the Babylonians had a bunch of sun gods in their mythology. I always thought it was interesting why you would connect that figure with a son of God instead of an actual God. But... Nebuchadnezzar, whether he realized it or not, knew exactly what he was talking about. Because that fourth man, it wasn't one of these cheap Babylonian statues of himself. It was the actual God of the Hebrews yes, who I came mean. to Babylon with his people. And Nebuchadnezzar would be amazed. The adversary for that time of the Hebrews would be amazed at the hand of God over his people. And beginning that... God did not take away the flames from that fire. God allowed his own people to be thrown into that fire, not to necessarily prove a point to them, although there's always a point to be proven to God's people, but we see clearly that a point was also to be made to their adversary, Nebuchadnezzar. Because even if the Hebrew boys did not see that fourth man, the mightiest man in the world who was trying to kill them, certainly did. You'd think a lesson could be learned from that, and a lesson was learned. Because you read this decree in Daniel chapter 4 that Nebuchadnezzar had personally sent out to the nations of the world just constantly exhorting the God of heaven and earth, not worshiping his own pagan gods, but worshiping the true God as a converted man in a way, the mightiest man in the world. God allows those furnace experiences because he has a point to prove to everybody not just his own people. Whenever the Hebrews had made it to the Red Sea, and if you ever looked at a map on Egypt and the Red Sea, I mean, it would have looked like God had absolutely no idea what he was doing. They literally start complaining to Moses and telling him, were there not enough graves in Egypt for you to bury us in? And yet, only to add insult to injury, God leaves them stranded at the Red Sea just long enough for Pharaoh, out of all people in the world, to catch up with him, with his army, or at least Pharaoh's army, to catch up with him. And then God decides to split the Red Sea. Isn't it interesting that God gave them just enough time, that God gave the Egyptians just enough time to catch up with the Hebrews so that they too could see the sea split? And isn't it interesting that the exact same rite of passage that God would give his own people to leave Egypt would be the exact same instrument that God would use to destroy their adversaries, the Red Sea. So here's Job suffering. The devil is not even mentioned at the, book, at the end of this book, and I'll get to that here in a second. But fast forward thousands of years on a little hill called Calvary. With the same instrument that God would use to free his people from the bondage of sin, he would use to officially seal the fate of our greatest adversary, the devil himself. And none of the disciples would have known about that, or at least to the degree that we do today as it happened. Whenever Jesus would talk about his hour, him being lifted up, the cross of Calvary, there would always be this weird hostility to come from the disciples. Lord, not you. You ain't going to be crucified if I have anything to say about it. They had no idea. They had absolutely no idea how needful they were of that finished work. And many Christians today don't know how needful they are of the grace of God found in that finished work. A lot of people are ignorant 
of the things of God. Thank you, God. Thank you. Don't let the ignorance of this situation fool you into believing that God has abandoned you. The fact is, a lot of people don't know God maybe as well as they think they do. And the fact is, God's ways are higher than our ways. These are not always ways that we understand. The world listens to what I'm telling you right now, and they say that I'm just being foolish, that we're just stupid for believing that, oh, you can't understand everything, but it's fact. It is the truth that you are not going to understand why everything happens in your life that happens. That's right. The Amen. test of faith is very real in those seasons. Whenever God approaches Job at the end of this book, the devil is at no point ever mentioned. God's ministry to Job is not about the devil. The devil has fulfilled God's purposes in all of this, and now it's just between Job and God himself. It's not a rivalry, it's a discussion. God does not condemn Job, but he doesn't necessarily exhort him either. God just gives Job, throughout this season, a revelation of who he is. And at first glance, that revelation might not be as pretty as Job thought it could have been. Here's a man who was very privileged just a while ago, and now he has absolutely nothing. Do I still believe in God? I have not a clue what even I have to repent for, really. Do I still believe in God? Is God unfair, or do I just not understand all of his ways? What in the world's going on? Do I believe God, or do I not believe in God? It's a major question. That we ask during times of suffering. Whenever we ask ourselves, where is God in the suffering? See, God was never ignorant to these situations going on. And the fact of the matter is, God is always where he was when the suffering started. He's still on the throne. Amen. He's still in control. Yes. He's still in control. And the fact is, even whenever it is the devil's fault, as many Christians like to kind of just... Uh, right on that idea even if it is ever the devil's fault it's still a matter just between you and the Lord it is not godly Christian behavior for you to get up in the morning and just shout at the devil yeah y'all know y'all know I mean they made a whole rock song back in the 80s about that just shout at the devil and a lot of Christians have that mentality too if you're going through a tough time just just yell at the devil and it'll be a friend. The devil does not get scared because you woke up in the morning. The devil gets scared because you belong to King Jesus. Yes, hallelujah. That's where your hope is in. And it's an interesting message. It's an interesting theme. It's an interesting question. Do I believe in God even when I suffer? Because the fact of the matter is God is sovereign. Our Calvinist brothers and sisters are right about there. Uh, emphasizing of that, that we just don't believe that they have a right view of God's sovereignty, but nevertheless, God is sovereign. God knew that Satan was going to attack you, and God allowed it anyways. It's not because you didn't have enough faith to stop the devil. Be very weary whenever people tell you that. Whenever somebody gets sick and they die, whenever, some, whenever you lose your dog, it's just because you didn't have enough faith. If you had more faith, none of that bad stuff would have happened. Be very careful of people who fall in line with that thinking. Because if Job, if all of this was dependent on Job's faith, don't you think he could have just confessed the devil to leave him alone? And again, that goes to the whole, well, we're new covenant believers. We have the power of the Spirit now. Don't you think that if that was that simple, that Paul could have confessed his way out of prison before being arrested for the gospel three times? And writing, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me from a jail cell? Don't you think if it was so easy to confess that thorn in his side out of existence that Paul would have done that before pleading with God three separate times to remove that thorn for him? It's time that many Christians acknowledge who the sovereign one is. And as absolutely stupid the world might think you are, whenever you, whenever you profess the faith of Jesus Christ, even when you cannot explain what's going on, even when you can't just explain all of your problems away, whenever you choose to have your faith in Christ anyways, it's time for many Christians to know that God's ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And I may not have a clue what's going on, but I'm still going on with Jesus because there's nothing that the world can do. 
to take me away. There's nothing that the devil could do to take me away. And the Lord is not willing to take me away from his own presence. There was a disciple in the early church, and I'll conclude with this line of thought. There was a great martyr. I keep forgetting his name, and I wish I could remember his name because he has some of the most legendary last words of a Christian before being put to death. This individual, if I remember correctly, was being put to uh, was being put to death by uh, they were going to burn him alive, and they were going to execute him simply because he preached the gospel. And they said to this individual before they put him to death, they said, if you'll just renounce that gospel, if you'll renounce your faith in this Jesus Christ, we will not kill you. We will not put you to death. All you have to do is reject this Christianity that you've preached about. This disciple, this man of God, whatever his act, cannot stand that I'm forgetting his name, looked at this crowd and he said, Jesus Christ has been this good to me so far. Why in the world would I leave him now? Let it be known I am a Christian. And did they put him to death? Yes, they did put him to death. But let me tell you something. There's no better place to be in Christ, even when I'm surrounded by the fire. Amen. 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 Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night. Lord, we thank you for this evening service that you've given us, God. I ask that we all leave with something that you want us to know from this. That even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of times, that we just don't understand how we can be reminded to trust in you with all of our heart and to lean not on our own understanding, but to lean on your wisdom, your strength, your guidance, even though we may not have a full comprehension of what exactly that is or what that looks like, Lord, we just might spend all of eternity learning about the rich depths that the gospel has and showing us who you are. Lord, we know that you are a God of judgment, you are a God of wrath, but we also know from experience and by the testimony of your word that you are a God who is rich in love and mercy. We know, God, that it's not your will to cast us out of your presence, and we thank you for your power that sustains us. We give you all the praise and glory and honor.